Welcome to Week in Review, where we recap issues and events pertinent to Central Illinois. I'm WNBD News Director Cooper Banks. Peoria police have released pictures and videos from police body cameras surrounding the officer-involved shooting death of 59-year-old Vincent Richmond. This past week, Chief Eric Echevarria took time on WNBD's The Craig Collins Show to tell us more and to speak out. Let's touch on one thing that's been uh, kind of talked about a lot uh, over the weekend. You had a press conference on Friday about this. Uh, a 59-year-old man, Samuel Vincent Richmond, uh, was involved in a, a police officer, an officer shooting. Uh, well, how do you say that? What's the exact term for that again? The, officer involved shooting. Thank you. There we go. Officer involved shooting. Uh, he died. Uh, the family has pushed for more information. On Friday, you released a bunch more information. Is there anything else we need to know about that story? You know, it, it's a sad situation. Um, all the way around. I, I don't want anybody to lose sight of that. You know, officers are trained and prepared, and we, we, we carry different tools on us. And, you know, we would love to go through our career and not ever have to use our, our weapon, our gun. Right. Um, you know, I explain it this way. You know, we are, you know officers are injured quite a bit or, or are killed on traffic stops, right? On A uh, car hits them. But that doesn't mean we stop making traffic stops because it's part of our job. We're prepared to go out there, make the traffic stops. We're prepared to do what we need to do. Um, but it still is something we share in the sadness with this community as well in this situation. It affects both sides. Yeah. Nobody wins, right? Yeah, no, it actually, it's interesting you mentioned what you do about the traffic stop thing. Because I've read before that that's one of the most likely statistical scenarios where uh, an officer would wind up in a, like they lose their life. Uh, which is sort of crazy as far as uh, stops go. Uh, and I also remember this story at Indiana where this guy in a motorcycle, a few cars down from somebody who gets pulled over, but he gets pulled over too for speeding or something. Take that extra second. You're like, how did this end this way? Right. right. Uh, I do want to ask you one other thing, and it's not specific to this story. There has been a lot of things being said, I think, within communities uh, about all kinds of stuff. Uh, but I am curious because this is one narrative that kept popping up, and you don't need to be specific to this this case. Uh, but I do think it's it's an awful other thing. Uh, sometimes you hear about stories where people choose to do a thing in a moment that causes an officer to have to use force because those individuals uh, don't want to be here anymore. Not to say it any other way other than that. It's, it's an officer-assisted suicide. It's actually got a term uh, behind it. Again, without being specific to this case, but since some things are being talked about in certain ways, I just wonder how you or anyone talks about the the potential for something like that, for someone to to be provocative in a moment with a weapon uh, desiring to be shot at by a police officer. Yeah, again, um, we don't know what goes on in people's lives. And, right. and, and you know, in this situation, what we hear, right, it, by all accounts, uh, Mr. Richmond was a, a great man. Mm-hmm. Um, what what occurred and what led up to this one moment in time, um, it will paint a, a, a further picture of yeah. how it, it happened, how we arrived through a one moment in time. I'll remind the community, like I did at the press conference, Mr. Richmond pointed a gun at my officers. Right. And at that point, everything changes. Um, again, sad situation on both ends. I have officers who, who, who now have to deal with that and yeah. live with that. Yeah. And we have a family on the other side of this that has to 
live within as well. Right, right exactly. Um, I, I guess I would just want to yeah. ask one other quick thing about uh, all of it. Um, um, and this is just like sort of a, a selfish, uh, basic thing, I guess, in the sense of how uh, all these things just go in general. Um, but I, I was just um, wondering, uh, you know, when you when you talk about these things, a police officer, when you talk about the reality of the job in, in certain ways, um, how how do you pro approach conversations like that? What are the because you know if if someone points a gun at a police officer, that is a dangerous situation for a police officer. There's no right. other way around that. I guess I'm just trying to ask you, like, what is the training or what is the conversations about this, and then how important is transparency after the fact? How important is what you guys are doing right now in in showing the totality of the story? Right, obviously, you know, you know that's a great question when you talk about training and protocols. Things happen sometimes very, very quickly, and they escalate very, very fast. And then when, when you have a gun that's brought into the picture, right. it changes the dynamics of right. the response. So it's hard to say on a case-by-case. Case, it's on a case-by-case case basis. Sure. But, again, you know, I think it was important. It doesn't affect the investigation right now to put out this information. It's sure. not detrimental to the investigation. Sure. I think it's important for the community to have some answers as to how we got to where we got. Sure. Um, yeah. And I think it was clear that day. There's a picture of a firearm, a still, yeah. laying next to him, and then obviously prior to that, a, a still image right. of the video Can I actually, well. I, this general question, I told you we weren't going to uh, stick on this topic for too long, but I can't help it. This is just a general question. It's not about this specific story at all. I wonder how valuable it is for the everyday uh, person, not somebody involved in a situation or family members that want to know more and more about something, but the fact that we release body camera footage and you, you can see anywhere in our society when something gets debated a lot, the footage that I purposely don't watch it. I don't really want to see those moments unless for some reason I feel like for my job I have to. Um, but is that really a good thing for society? That there's this demand for like body camera footage of those moments to be out there and, and pop up on, on news all over the country? In I, some agree, of these cases? I agree with you. If I did not have to watch it, I would not either. Right. I don't... I don't think that's something. This that's is real right. life. We're talking about real life. This isn't right. make believe. This right. isn't a movie. It isn't a movie set. This is real life. Real people are involved. Yeah. Um, I think this is the way society has gone. They want to see it. They want to. They want to see what occurred. They want to know that it really happened. Mm -hmm. And, As opposed and, to it just being, say, showed to the, the family members of right. someone involved in one yeah. of these things, to have it out there in the public for anyone to go click on it and see it, right. it just feels like it's, as you said, more a, a societal demand than even something that helps anyone involved in this. Well, you know, things have happened over the years, right, sure. uh, it, it, in policing and in, in communities sure. that shouldn't have happened, right? There's things that have happened, and so when when that trust is lost at some point, yeah. well, people demand, well, I need to see more. I need to, I need to see what really happened to understand it and really build up the trust, and I think it's part of that as well. Okay, fair enough. Uh, just a couple other quick things I want to ask you about, uh, easier co uh, topics of conversation. Uh, we're not going to see each other for a little while because I'm going to have some off days and stuff, and I, I'm assuming you get some off days over the holiday, hopefully. Uh, that's a great assumption. <laughs> Maybe it's not true. Uh, so the holiday for hero, holiday with heroes thing, or shop with a cop, as it's also known, no. uh, that's happening again later this month. Tell us more about that. Yeah, our, our neighborhood services unit, uh, Detective Hazards, uh, Sergeant White, and the rest of the team have done a fantastic job. Um, I, I think they they were shooting for a hundred kids. I know the last time I spoke to them, I think they had like ninety six. Wow, and had some more on a wait list. What they shot for. Um, it's just phenomenal, and they and they they vet it all, 
Um, yeah, you can't call in and say, I want to get on the list. Yeah. They've got the families. They, they, they have a way of getting families that in need that need it. And I'm sure there's going to be. What do you get from the cops that get to do this? Uh, what is their reaction to getting to walk around and shop with a, with a kid? Well, it's a little bit different this year. They're not, they're doing, they get in the list gotcha. and then they go shop for it. And then the families show up at the police department at a scheduled and time. And there's a little Christmas festivity for nice. them. And, they have a whole plan. They got a winter wonderland creation they're putting together in there. Seriously. Right. No, but how and, do the cops react to going in, oh, out and they, shopping they, and grabbing the stuff, not, seeing kids unwrap that or whatever? Oh, it's a, it's, it's, it's a pleasure. It's, it's heartwarming. Yeah. And I think the community really enjoys seeing the officers at the store shopping. Sure. So it, it's great. It's a, it, that's a win-win for everybody. Do you think I, the officers ever need to be reminded of how valuable they are? Do you think they ever need that? Absolutely they okay. do. And I think uh, our community has been great at... As sharing that and showing us, and, and we see the comments on our Facebook, but it does not go unnoticed. So if you're listening to the show, and <laughs> yes, yeah. we appreciate the compliments, we appreciate the comments and mm-hmm. the support, mm-hmm. and the officers, the men and women of Peoria Police Department, work very hard to keep the city safe, and they do a phenomenal job. So while you're sleeping, they're working. While you're spending time with your family, they're working. Uh, we're missing holidays. They're, I, holidays are missed. Birthdays are missed to make sure that the city is safe, and they do a phenomenal job. Changes to the so-called cashless bail provisions of the State Safety Act are nearly reality now. Both the Illinois House and Senate have approved the so-called trailer bill making changes. Here's a little of the debate that happened Thursday in the Senate chamber in Springfield. Is there further discussion? Senator Anderson. So I want to lay out a couple things here, mostly for the public that's listening and the media that's here. Mostly the process or lack thereof and the politics of this bill in particular. Two years ago, I did a Facebook Live at about 5.30 in the morning. And I laid out all the things that were bad about this bill. And we talked about the, the policy stuff, and we talked about the assault on law enforcement and how uh, uh, they would be leaving the profession and going to different states. And what we got called by the other side was we were called fear mongers. That's not true. You're fear mongering. And to the media, not all of you, but a lot of you were culpable in that. I was directed by a member of the media, and I wish I could say his name, but I won't, told me, that's not true. You're fear-mongering. You're fear-mongering. Well, guess what? We're here today to address the stuff that we were accused of fear-mongering about. Because it's true. And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to give you a little prediction about how it's going to go from here. You pass bad policy. We pointed out you call us fear mongers. Now, people are on to you, and you say, oh crap, we better fix that. Senator never had any intention of ever coming back and doing anything with this bill until the public was finally on to you. And you're like, oh crap, we better fix it. I'm telling you right now, the things that Senator Bryant Senator McClure, Senator Rose pointed out that are issues with this bill. Guess what? Tomorrow we're going to be accused of fear-mongering. One, two years from now, we're going to be right back here 
fixing that. You guys play a dirty game, and we're on to you. And the public's on to you, too. And this is just one more example of how you and your leftist policies are driving a once great state into the ground. Further discussion, Senator Bennett. I don't know how to follow that, but to the bill. To the bill. Mr. President, I have a lot of respect for my colleagues on the other side of the political aisle, but I have a hard time respecting the arguments that have put, been put forward here today. Some of those uh, that have said, well, first of all, that every single one doesn't start with this amendment, but begins with a time travel back two years about a bill that we're not voting on today, uh, and their issues with what, how late they had to stay up or how many pages they had to read or what the process was for an entirely different, different bill and whether or not they were uh, invited to the party. The fact is, we have a bill in front of us that we have tried to hear uh, from our, our colleagues on both sides of the aisle, from those in our, uh, in our communities that said, we'd like to see these things addressed in this bill. A bill of which this third part of the Safety Act, the Preach All Fairness, did have a two-year effective push-off so that we would have time to implement it the right way. Where were your bills? Every single time you guys say, well, we didn't get invited, nobody invited us to this committee, you could have done the exact same thing, and Senator Rose mentioned my bill. I filed a bill. Your senators, your constituents, I don't know where Senator Curran went, your constituents sending here, Senator Curran, in the hopes that you will file bills and get their voices heard. But if you don't file those bills, if you don't try to take part in that conversation, and then you say, I want to see a big change, and then we provide a chance to vote for a change, and you say, no, it doesn't go far enough. Well, what's wrong with getting, I don't know how many times, Senator McClure, you said, all this does is make things better. Isn't that what we want? Don't we want things to be better? And if you think that moves the ball and gets society or safety or whatever your characterization was to a better place, what's stopping you from filing a trailer bill next year um, from adding additional things that you think are necessary for your constituents? I don't understand why that seems so difficult. But I would say this. It is interesting how many critics of the trailer bill process have a pretty weak record of legislative um, accomplishment in this body. And the fact that if you don't pass a bill, you don't understand how negotiation works, and you certainly don't understand why a trailer bill might be necessary. Because you can't get everything you want done in a, in a sizable bill, which the Safety Act certainly was. But the idea that, well, this bill must not be perfect because it needs trailer bills, there is no legislation that's perfect. Further discussion, Senator Bailey. To the bill, please. To the bill. You know, two years as a state representative and two years now as a, a senator, um, I believe today culminates, in my opinion, uh, the most frustrating and disgusting, embarrassing day in Illinois history. It's a slap in the face to every voter. It's a slap in the face to every business owner. It's a slap in the face to every police officer. It's a slap in the face even to our state's attorneys who obviously don't have a voice here. You know, uh, the campaign trail was obviously mentioned, and we've brought that up before. And, and to, my, uh, to my colleague, Senator Anderson's comments, I believe this particular motion and movement right here will be the catalyst to true change in Illinois until the people finally figure out what's taking place here. And I've already made the comment of 
no public exposure here in the Senate chambers, which is quite frustrating, that the public can't see and be a part of what's taking place, that's a problem. And when we exclude the people from the process, we've got some rough days coming ahead of us, and those days are coming. This bill needs put aside, and we need to truly start over again, as I have suggested for a long time now, and truly bringing people together and showing the people of Illinois what truly can be done and ultimately showing the people of this nation. But I am ashamed. I'm glad it's the last day of session for 2022 because what we're witnessing here is wrong. Further discussion? Senator Sims. Thank you, Mr. President, ladies and gentlemen of the Senate. To the bill, Mr. President. To the bill. I, I can only uh, chuckle, Mr. President, because the hypocrisy in this chamber is laughable. The hypocrisy of my friends on the other side of the aisle is, if you want to talk about disgusting, let's talk about the way that you will not participate in the process but then demean the same. Let me, for a moment, Mr. President, as Senator Peters, the sponsor, and let me, let me first thank Senator Peters, Senator Bennett, uh, the advocates who came to the table uh, to fight for a, a better criminal legal system, one that invests in communities. When it, we had a comment from one of my friends on the other side of the aisle about being driven out of the process because we don't invest in them. Where were my friends on the other side of the aisle when we were passing investments in law enforcement in the 2020, in the fiscal year 23 budget, in the fiscal year 22 budget, and before? Where were my friends then? Then there's a, there was a contention, Mr. President, that the, there was never a plan to do the process what we are taking up today. It is just not true. In 2000, January of 2021, the administrator, we had a member of the judiciary who came to the body and asked for the time for the court to do its business as we reimagine what our pretrial system will look like here in the state of Illinois. So as if I were to remind my colleagues, we started off with a process that would have implemented this process in one year. The judiciary asked us for two. So to suggest that this would never a part of the plan is just not true. We'll dive into the House side of the debate with more Week in Review coming up. Changes to the cashless bail provisions of the State Safety Act are one step closer now. The Illinois House and Senate approving the changes this week. We heard some of the prior debate on the Senate side in our last segment. Here's more in the State House from Thursday. Representative Gordon Booth. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Does the sponsor yield? He indicates he'll yield. Um, Chairman Slaughter, a lot has been said um, this evening, and I'd like to reset the table for a moment. And if you could be very specific, um, I think that would be helpful for this body. Uh, as you pull together uh, this trailer that you committed to continuing to work on when you passed this legislation in January of 2021, um, you've done so in a manner in which that brought people from all over the state, 
from both sides of the aisle to the table. Would you be willing to share specifically who was at the table from the State's Attorney's Association? Sure, and thank you, Leader. Um, uh, DuPage, State's Attorney, Bob Berlin was at the table, uh, who we all know represents the other side of the aisle. Uh, we also had uh, um, Jamie Moser, State's Attorney Jamie Moser from Kane County, uh, as well as uh, State's Attorney Julia Reitz um, from Champaign County. Was there always agreement, Chairman Slaughter, um, on the path forward, or was there compromise made along the way in order to bring this piece of legislation together? Well, what I'll say was there's extensive, uh, robust uh, discussions, uh, extensive negotiations. Um, and so with the focus of balancing out both public safety as well as reforms, uh, it was indeed a process and we got there in regards to, to what we have here, dare I say a collaboration, but a product that does uh, represent um, the wishes and the objectives of, of the advocacy on both ends of the public safety spectrum. Chairman Slaughter, there was a lot said about um, victims and the support of victims. Would you be willing to share uh, with the body specific victims organizations and domestic violence organizations that are supportive of this policy? Sure, uh, if you give me one second. The bill supported by the Illinois Coalition Against Domestic Violence and the Chicago Alliance Against Sexual Exploitation. Um, both of these organizations at the table uh, crafting um, their desires within a lot of these provisions, um, really, really supporting the notification aspect that they're gonna get from the courts in regards to um, their issues. And then also what we're doing is streamlining this process so that we are able to rework our court system to handle more of these serious, more violent offenses that um, unfortunately do occur uh, as a domestic violence. Um, thank you uh, for that clarification, Chairman Slaughter, to the bill. As you've heard from Chairman Slaughter, there's a lot of work that's been done on this policy that contrary to popular belief happened long before uh, memes started floating around on social media. Chairman Slaughter stated in January of 2021 that he would continue to work on this legislation, and he made that promise and he kept that promise. He has continued to bring folks from all sides of this issue, whether it be the advocate community, the law enforcement community, to have really important and at times very difficult conversations. And see, that's the thing about this body. If you actually talk to people and work together, in a collaborative manner, and I would even say in a bipartisan manner, you can get to a result that is actually going to do two things, that has the ability to keep our community safer, have the ability to better protect victims of crime, to better protect victims of domestic violence, to better protect victims of sexual assault, which is why those victims organizations are in support of this policy at the same time bringing more humanity to a process that desperately needed it.
The fact of the matter of it is, there is nothing that comes through this body that is perfect. But what we always strive to do is bring progress to the people that we all serve. I wanna thank Chairman Slaughter for all the work that you have been doing that you committed to do. I'd also like to thank Chairman Gongershowitz, Representative Vela, Chairman Buckner, Leader Manley, and Representative Delgado for their steadfast work. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Would the sponsor yield? Before I ask uh, you know, a few clarifying questions, Representative, I just think it's important to level set for this body why we're here and what we're talking about. When we set out to do this work, the impetus behind it was a current system wherein somebody who has not yet been convicted of a crime, and let's all remember that in our constitutional system, we are all entitled to a presumption of innocence. We are talking about a pre-trial detention system wherein the accused has not yet had the opportunity has not yet had the opportunity to have the state's evidence tested. And the reason why we have a constitutional guarantee in our system is it protects every single one of us, every single one of us. Equal justice under law should mean something. We are here because a system wherein Somebody's detention pre-trial is determined not based on whether they are a threat to the community, but whether or not they have enough cash to bail out of jail is one that has been deemed manifestly unjust. That's why we are here. So as a level set, let's remember where we started. We started to do the work to ensure that equal justice under law means exactly that. That you don't have somebody bond out because they have a wad of cash in their pocket or because they have enough money in their bank account while somebody else is in jail simply because they're poor. That's why we're here. And so I just wanna commend my colleagues who had the courage to do this work who had the courage to challenge the status quo and say that we will not continue to support a system that is manifestly unjust. That's where we start. So two years ago, we embarked on one of the most complicated pieces of legislation that this body will undertake, and I am incredibly proud of the work of my colleagues to get it right over the last two years. We are now at a point where we have a bill where both the, def the, the proponents, the advocates, and law enforcement are all neutral on the bill. So I just want to ask a couple clarifying questions with that spirit in mind. Representative, for those offenses under the detention net, what would be the, uh, the standard through which a judge would make a determination whether or not somebody is detained pre-trial? What, what is that standard? 
Representative, <clears throat> and thank you for your leadership as well. Um, we didn't want all <clears throat> offenses to be detainable because we continue to see those race disparities um, in, in, in New Jersey. And when you look at those lower level offenses, those race disparities were even more pronounced um, and more prevalent. And so that's what we're doing in creating of a bifurcated dangerousness standard where um, how it will be applied will depend on if the offense is violent in nature or not. With those nonviolent offenses, we would need to prove to a higher standard um, that that particular individual is actually a threat to an individual. Perhaps little known to many in the area, but working hard behind the scenes to bring more of Peoria's youth into a place of peace, open-mindedness, and stability from traumatic upbringings so they can pursue their dreams through a better education. We learn much more about Peoria's Rise Academy on WMBD's The Greg and Dan Show this week. Rise Academy is something that has uh, begun at the Peoria Public School, District 150. I want to talk first. We have uh, several guests in here. Uh, the executive director of Rise uh, and director of special education is Ann Bond. Good morning, Ann. How are you? Good morning. I'm fine. How what is you? Rise? Talk to me. So, um, Rise Academy is a program that we started about four months ago in Peoria Public Schools, and it's for students who are general education students in our K four setting, okay. who are not finding success in their homeschools, um, whether that be behaviorally or social emotionally. And so do they, are they taken, is, is there another facility then? The academy is a physical space? It is a space within a school within Peoria Public okay. Schools, yes. So, but, but if my child is in Rise Academy, they're going to that place with other Correct. members of Rise Academy. Yes. And it's K through four. Yes. What was the, the impetus to do this? What was, what was the start? So um, this has actually been kind of uh, in the works or needed um, for many, many years within our district. We have a lot of alternative um, programs, resources within our school district, particularly for middle and high school students. Right, right. Um, but we have definitely seen the need over the years to provide um, another opportunity for our K-4 kids. Is this mental health-based? Uh, uh, is, is that is that where we're going with it? I mean, is yes, that the need that these children are displaying? Uh, that is a displaying? component, for sure. Okay. Uh, in the studio, also, also from Rise Academy, Bridget Karstensen, Program Director. Uh, tell me who you see, and uh, not names, of course, but what, what are we dealing with? K-4 is a very fragile, uh, interesting time. Sometimes kids mature a little bit sooner than others and so on and so forth. What do you see? It is. So we have some really incredible kids that have joined us over at RISE. The kids that we are currently serving are coming from their home school. Like Dr. Bond said, they're having some challenges being successful in that school setting. They get referred to us from their home school, and then we're supporting them with their behavior and social-emotional needs as well as academic. Is, is, is it, um, I don't want to try to pinpoint any one thing. I'm just trying sure. to understand what children are dealing with. Yeah. Is it primarily behavioral? So what we see is that most of our students are coming from some trauma-based experiences, which are truly impacting their ability to function within the school setting. So although we see behaviors, there's students that have conflicts um, you know, with other students in school, on the bus, things like that. Um, what we're really seeing is that that is a result of the trauma that they've experienced um, either outside the school setting and sometimes even within school with, with peers that they have. Andrew Brown is also a part of Rise Academy. Andrew is a program facilitator. 
Um, what do you do to help? What do you What do you do, Andrew, or your staff, and and the, all of the folks that are involved? So thanks, Greg. Um, we have uh, really gone through a lot of specific training and focused on a, a lot of the latest research-based methods to kind of implement strategies to uh, address some of the behavioral concerns as well as um, focusing on that uh, trauma-informed care uh, best practice. That, uh, uh, any of you can answer this or react to my statement, it hurts my heart so much to think about trauma in little kids. These are little yeah. kids. Uh, I am lucky, knock on uh, wood, and, and God bless everything that's ever happened. I've never had to deal with that. My children, myself, uh, it's hard to put myself in that place. Are we talking trauma like witnessing violence or domestic abuse in the family or things like that? Is that what we're talking about, Ann? Uh, yes, for sure. And I think that you know that's one of the things that kind of keeps us going and the staff going at RISE is just really starting to fully understand what our children and their families are enduring on a regular basis. Uh, it's truly... Um, you know, it's really heart-wrenching, actually. How are they recommended? Is the teacher, uh, you can answer this, uh, uh, Bridget, uh, the teacher uh, say, uh, you know, talk to uh, Julie over here, this young lady's having some trouble. Sure. And then is it in con- in conjunction with the parents? Do the, the parents have to agree? Yep. So okay. we have a real rigorous uh, referral process. And so what that looks like is that these students um, are exhausting all of their homeschool options. That means that okay. they are working with their school social worker. It means that they are working um, on a system that allows for regular check-ins, communication home, families are involved in this process. And so it's never just, oh, there was an incident and now we're accepting a student. Okay. It's really a process that the homeschool is exhausting their resources first, and then that referral is made to us. Parents are always involved, and we certainly get parent consent before joining. Andrew, why why that age? Uh, is it just that we're trying to, I, I know our, you guys all probably are familiar with Carl Cannon and his program, mm-hmm. and he started something called uh, Don't Start, where he realized he needed to go younger because he was at a high school level, so he went younger to try to capture guys who were 10, 11, and 12 doing some things. Uh, this seems like maybe a, a same mindset of the earlier we can rectify some emotional damage and some trauma situations, uh, the better. I'm assuming that's the reason, right? That's yeah. absolutely the reason. And, uh, you know, I think as we've seen uh, kind of an increase in community violence and uh, the impact that it's having, it, you know, we've, we've got, as Dr. Bond said, we've got a, a few programs in place to address the needs of middle school and high school students. But this is something that's been, um, this, this group has been underserved in this area for uh, many years. And uh, I think uh, the earlier we can get interventions in place, uh, the better chance of success we have long term. Uh, Just quickly, like, do we follow? I mean, I know the program's pretty very young in in District 150. Are we going to is there a plan to follow the students after four, like after fourth grade, like to kind of have a post rise academy? So um, what we're planning is for students to return to their home school as they're demonstrating skills that really are necessary to be successful. So we have some plans in place as to what that will look like for students um, because we recognize that they need a smooth transition and we want to continue to provide support as they transition back. Um, I think one of the saddest things for us would be to have students who do well with us and then don't carry those skills over. So mm-hmm. there is a very specific um, plan in place for what that's going to look like for our kids. Having said that, the district has so many 
great alternative programs for older students okay. if a student needs to continue with that level of support. Gotcha. Our hope is, though, is that we're getting them so young, this is used yeah. as a short-term intervention sure. yeah. so that kids can then be successful in a more traditional setting. Dr. Bond, what else yeah, can we I do was, to help? I was just thinking, um, yeah. also kind of a long-term vision for the program for our students is you know, providing um, mentorship amongst uh, between, I should say, the RISE staff and the families and the kids for the long term, um, even after they sort of graduate from RISE and move mm -hmm. back to homeschools and other programs. And I would also say I think the long term um, vision, too, is that the strategies employed at RISE, um, the different pieces, that components that are a part of RISE, eventually start to sort of infuse into our traditional school settings as well. So that maybe in the long run, we don't even have to have kind of this alternative. It just becomes the, yeah. the thing. It's the yes. thing. Yeah. How, how amazing would that yeah, be? Yeah, that would be pretty amazing. So, yeah. uh, For families that are listening or maybe somebody knows another family that might need the help, uh, what, do we, what do we do? How do we contact you folks? Sure. So we would actually recommend that they talk to their homeschool administrator. Okay. They have all Principal, the tools that they whatever. need then to reach out to us, complete that referral form, um, and then we would take steps Does from it there. cost anything? Not for doesn't, the families. Doesn't cost anything nope. to the families. Okay. Do you need funding? I mean, is, how how do we fund this? No, we do not need funding. So it's not like we can donate to help support Rise Academy. Right. That's not a uh, that's yeah. not a mechanism. Correct. All right. Well, good uh, good yeah. for you guys. Yeah, I like this idea. Uh, yeah, it's exciting, and it just started this year, this, this school year. So we'll keep an eyeball on it and see uh, see all the things that are happening. And thank you all, and I uh, hope you have a great thank holiday. You. Good to see thank you. you. That does it for this edition of Week in Review. I'm Cooper Banks, WMBD News.